look in your Bibles tonight, Luke chapter 9. We talked Sunday morning out of Isaiah 6, who is this king of glory? We talked last night out of Revelation 1 on the church under attack. Take courage tonight. My final message, your midst of your revival, is in Luke chapter 9. And the message tonight is the cost of discipleship, the cost of discipleship. I got to tell you on the front, and this is one of my favorite sermons to preach, all right? So uh, it's just near and dear to my heart, and I think it's so important for people to hear. It's so vital for people to understand what the true cost of being a follower of Jesus Christ is. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, we'll read down to verse 26. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Let's pray tonight. Dear Holy Father, we just pray for your anointing. Uh, we pray that your unction would be uh, upon me as I speak. Uh, give us eyes to see, uh, give us ears to hear, give us hearts that are sensitive. Uh, Lord, may we realize that this message is for everyone, but Lord, specifically tonight, it's for us. And so we pray that you would help us to see, Lord, are we uh, on the united road with you? Are we following Christ? Are we keeping our eyes on him? Uh, are we counting the cost? Are we walking for you? Lord, we know that there's so much to pull us off this road, but God, help us to be true followers, disciples of your uh, son, Jesus Christ. Bless this service in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated tonight. Let me ask you tonight a, a few questions, and this just be a challenging message. I, uh, normally, if I preach away a revival, I would try to leave you in the last night of uh, it with the challenge, but this I'm kind of right in the midst of your revival, but I thought I'm going to leave you with the same challenge, all right? So uh, you're going to get it either way, man. But uh, the good thing about coming preaching to a church like this is you, there's a difference, I'll say, uh, when I preach at churches, of knowing the kind of churches that get hot preaching, and they receive it, and they respond, and, and there's a sense where they really appreciate it. <laughs> and then you go to some churches, and they're not used to getting, you know, <laughs> fiery preaching, and, it, and it's a little bit like, you know, one of these numbers, <laughs> and you're like, well, I'll be one and done there, but uh, uh, nonetheless, here, you get it week in, week out. Let's talk tonight about the cost of discipleship. Just ask you a few questions and really take this message to, to heart. What does it cost you to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What is the price that you pay for following Christ? This message is one that's rarely heard in churches across America. And how desperately it is needed in a dry and weary land. I remind you tonight that Christ is not coming to move in. He's coming to take over. Luke 9 tells us this, remember that a discipleship that costs nothing is worth nothing. A disciple is a follower of Jesus, and so the question comes tonight, how much of you does Jesus have? If you were to attribute your spiritual life with Christ to like a phone battery, what percent of you does he have? The cost of discipleship, what it means to be a follower of Jesus from Jesus. Let's walk through this and see who Jesus is and what he calls us to as his followers. And please note tonight that we're talking about what Jesus says it means to be a follower and a disciple. 
We're not listening to K-Love. We're not taking a poll on social media. We're not asking other people what it means to be a follower. Everyone's got an opinion. Reality is none of those opinions matter, but Jesus' words do matter. And so what does he say it means to be one of his followers? What are the quote-unquote words in red? Well, I want to give you a few things tonight, and before you call me a heretic, hear the whole sermon out, all right? First thing I want to say, number one, is the gospel was not free. The gospel was not free. Now, before you throw me off the stage, hear me out. The gospel is not free. Sadly, we have used, and I many times have said phrases like this, and have carelessly tossed these kind of things around. We hear this phrase, the gospel is free. It will cost you nothing. All you have to do is... Our generation, though, for far too long has been too loose with their lips and have sunk many ships. We've been careless with holy God and holy scripture. We haven't given the whole truth of the biblical gospel, and as a result, we have misinformed as a churches across the nation. We've misinformed and misled many along the way. So what's happening? Well, let's set the stage. What's happening in modern day Christianity? You know what we see happening is we are diluting Jesus' message so it's easier to swallow. Yet at what point, I ask, is the line of error crossed? Because at some point, you're going to water something down to the point it's no longer what it began to be. 2 Corinthians 11.4 talks about this. Paul says, For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, whom you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. He speaks about another Jesus and another spirit and another gospel. Now, if you ask the normal church-going person in America today about Jesus and the Spirit and the gospel, they would probably think that, man, you're right on the target. But Paul says you can use the name Jesus, Spirit, and gospel and have it all wrong. Pastor John MacArthur said something, and I just want to make a reference to this. He says the first role, we see this today, what we're trying to do is we're, 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 we're treating church like it's a business. We're treating church like you, you know, people come and, and you're the consumer and we're just trying to pacify you and entertain you and keep you coming. But let, hear this out. He said the first role of successful merchandising is to give consumers what they want. If they want bigger burgers, make their burgers bigger. Designer bottled water and six fruit flavors, done. Many vans with 10 cup holders, give them 20. You've got to keep the customer satisfied. You've got to modify your product and your message to meet their needs if you want to build a market and get ahead of the competition. Today, the same consumer mindset has invaded Christianity. The church service is too long, you say? Well, we'll shorten it. One pastor guarantees his sermons will never last more than seven minutes. You never have to worry about that, amen? <laughs> Nor do you folks for Trilla Coffee, amen? Too formal, wear your sweatsuit. Too boring, wait till you hear our band. If the message is too confrontational or too judgmental or too exclusive, scary, unbelievable, hard to understand, or too much of anything else for your taste, churches everywhere are eager to adjust the message to make you more comfortable. This new version of Christianity makes you a partner on the team, a design consultant on church life, and does away with old-fashioned authority, guilt trips, accountability, and moral absolutes. One suburban church sent out a mailer recently promising an informal, relaxed, casual atmosphere. Great music from our band, and believe it or not, you'll even have fun. That's all great if you're a coffee house. It's Christianity for consumers, Christianity light, the redirection, watering down, and misinterpretation of the biblical gospel in an attempt 
to make it more palatable and popular. It tastes great going down. It settles light. It seems to salve your feelings and scratch your itch. It's custom tailored to your preferences. But that lightness will never fill you up with the true saving gospel of Jesus Christ because it's designed by men, not God, and it's hollow and worthless. In fact, it's worse than worthless because people who hear the message of Christianity light think they're hearing the gospel, think they're being rescued from eternal judgment when in fact they're being tragically misled. Leonard Ravenhill said this, if Jesus had preached the same message that ministers preach today, he would never have been crucified. Spurgeon said, a time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. You see, today we want the crown without the cross. Too many settle for what Satan offered Jesus. Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world without the cross. And it seems to me that there are a lot of preachers today that are given the same kind of message that Satan offered to Jesus there. Today's prosperity gives a person everything their carnal nature desires. Come to Jesus, stay as you are. He will satisfy your eyes, flesh, and pride, giving you health, wealth, and prosperity. Buy it all for free. All you need is the Jesus card. Today's Jesus never interferes. Yet this isn't the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus is not coming to move in. He's coming to take over. There's a toleration today in Christianity that Jesus will not tolerate what did it cost God? We said a moment ago that the gospel was not free. You need to remember something. What did it cost God? It cost him everything. It, it, what did it cost Jesus? It cost him everything. The gospel is not cheap. <laughs> it is the most costly transaction that has ever occurred in our universe. Luke 9.22 says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the, the third day. He, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Listen, the gospel was not free. It cost God. It cost Christ everything. The gospel is not a one-way street. Too many today have a tendency to view the gospel as a one-way street. They look at it as Jesus did everything. Well, I can kind of recline in my lazy boy and do nothing. And yet we fail to consider the terms and costs of discipleship. The gospel was not free. The debt was insurmountable. The price of sin was too great for us to pay. Then the question comes, why? Why was it too great for us to pay? We need to understand God's requirements. God is the righteous one alone. And he establishes the terms of relating to humanity. Do you meet God's standard of righteousness? So well, what is that standard? Well, the standard is clear. Matthew 5.48, the standard is perfection. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which in heaven is perfect. Now we hear that word perfect, and that's not a word we like to use today. Because no one is perfect, amen? <laughs> Except God in Christ, yet this is his standard. For us to be right with Him. To, to enter into His glory. Now you may be here tonight and say, Well, Pastor, I don't agree with that and I don't like that. You may not like God's way, but J. Vernon McGee said it best. This is God's universe. And He does things His way. You may have a better way, but then again, you don't have a universe. The Constitution of Christianity, the book of Romans, opens with the first three chapters, over 80 verses dedicated to convince us of one thing. And I want you to think about this. When Paul, who gives us in Romans the constitution of Christianity as clear as anywhere in the Bible, really, if you could pick one book, that arguably from A to Z, 
really covers the gamut, amen? I mean, there's, they're all good, but man, Romans really just hits, hits the, every nail on the head there. And you know what he doesn't do? You know, you know, he doesn't open Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and, and immediately try to, to get you to kind of, quote, unquote, pray some prayer, to, to, to jump in too fast. You know, the first thing he does is he tries to convince all people of their need of a righteousness that they don't possess. Romans chapter 1, he is hammering it home. Uh, he, he is declaring all the world, understand, he's declaring all the world, all the nations, all the people have gone astray. He comes to Romans chapter 2, and that the Jews think that they somehow are left out of Romans chapter 1, he, he just uppercuts them and he says, you are preachers and teachers, and yet you haven't kept the very law that you are proclaiming. You need righteousness that you don't have. Then he gets to Romans chapter 3, and if he hit the Gentile nations in chapter 1 and the Jews in chapter 2, he hits anyone he left out in Romans chapter 3. There is none good. There are none righteous. All have sin. Our mouth, our tongues, our minds, our ways, our past, our hearts, they're all sinful. There is no fear of God. Every mouth will be stopped, and all the world will become guilty. All have sin and come short of the glory of God. 81 verses, three chapters. He doesn't even get to propitiation and expiation and justification until he nails down, he hammers home that we need righteousness that we don't have. It's like the dad when you got in trouble and it's like, just whip me. Because <laughs> this, this verbal spanking that I'm getting, anything's better than this, you know? And, and Paul's just hammering it away and it's just like I'm beaten, bruised, laid down. I have no life left in me. And then he says, now let me tell you what Christ did for you. Listen, we, there, there comes this point where we need to understand we're trying to lead people to Christ who don't even know they're lost. They need to know they are lost. What does it mean to be righteous? It Literally, if you could break it down in a few statements, it's God-likeness. It's the state of Him who is as He ought to be. It's the condition acceptable of the state approved of God. It is to be as God is, to be perfect as we just referenced. And you ask yourself the question, am I as God is? Am I in that same state? Am I righteous? No, the Bible declares none are righteous. God is righteous in all His nature, character, acts, attitudes, and expressions, yet we are not. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What does this mean? The glory of God, the sum total of all His characteristics and all their perfection. I like what the theologian Buswell said. He said, sin is anything in us that does not express or is contrary to to the holy character of God, the Creator. Everything in me, everything in you that does not reflect God. And we don't make it very far, do we? Habakkuk says, Thou art of pure eyes and to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. God cannot look upon evil. God cannot look upon sin. But we don't comprehend this. This is, this is outside of us. This is the separateness, the holiness of God, as we declare. Just how wicked are we? I like what Donald Gray Barnhouse said here, just to show the grave wickedness of man. He said this, God will give a man brains to smelt iron and make a hammerhead and nails. God will grow a tree and give man strength to cut it down and brains to fashion a hammer handle from its wood. And when man has the hammer and the nails, God will put out his hand and let man drive nails through it and place him on a cross and the supreme manifestation that men are without excuse. That is powerful. 
We are sinners separated from a holy God who always does and judges right. He will cast us into hell because we have broken his laws. Now you may be here tonight and there may be things you fear. You may fear the government. You may fear law enforcement. You may fear plagues and COVID and peers and foreign nations. You may fear social media uh, backlash. You may have uh, 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 fear being unfriended or being unpopular. But listen, I, uh, there may be other times and things to be concerned with, but the greatest thing we need to fear is the one who can cast our soul into hell. Fear him, Matthew 10 says. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the one and only. He stands apart from every other person who's walked this planet. What did Jesus do? Luke 9.22 again says he gave his all for you. He came. He lived. He suffered. He died. He arose. He ascended. And he's coming back. Now here's where the terms of discipleship comes in. Sadly many people understand what they're signing up for. The gospel was not cheap. The terms of discipleship are very costly. They're not on a clearance rack. Now, I'm as cheap as they come. I look, when I go to a store, the first place I go is the clearance rack. And I encourage my wife and four kids to go do the same thing, right? <laughs> Amen, that's right. But when we think about the biblical gospel, there's no aspect of it being on the clearance rack. And there's no aspect to your discipleship of following Christ that is ever described as being bargain discipleship. You're not going to barter with God about this. It will cost you everything. The gospel was not free. It costs God the Father and God the Son everything. And let this sink in. The cost of discipleship is expensive. It will cost you everything. The one who laid down his life now turns to you and I, and he says, this is your cost. Let's walk through it together. The one who gave us all now commands us to give our all. You say, well, what right does he have to make such demands? Who is he to tell me anything? That's what the world wants to know. Well, the first thing is, he created you. He brought you into this world. And like my mama used to say, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of this world. Amen. <laughs> if you had a mama like that, you had a good mama. You may not have thought at the time, but you realize as you grow up. Amen. <laughs> Every more than one time, our mama whooped us. I'm just telling you. Uh, she may be sweet now, but boy, she had another side growing up. We probably gave her good reason uh, to whoop our butts. Josh, a little bit more. Amen. He got a lot of whoopers, I'm just telling you. He had a, you think he's got a loud mouth then? He had a loud mouth back then too and got him in trouble a few times, all right? He said, what, what right does Jesus have to make any demands on my life? Listen, he, he brought you into this world. He created you. He keeps your life going. He keeps your heart pumping and your lungs breathing in and out. He, he's going to one day consummate you back in his presence. And if you're here tonight as a child of Jesus Christ, he has bought you twice fold. <laughs> He paid double for you. Now look, that's grace. <laughs> God didn't deserve to pay at all for you, and yet he paid all that price for you. And we come to him, and we have to say all to Jesus, I surrender. So what does it cost you to be a Christian? The terms of discipleship from Jesus. Let's look at what Jesus says here. That Luke 9.23 will really focus our attention. Notice as it says here, and he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Listen, I argue that this is the thesis verse for Christians. This may arguably be my favorite verse in the Bible. When we say Jesus Christ is my Savior and Lord, what does that look like? You know, Jesus doesn't mince words. I love that. He shoots straight. People sometimes will say, when you preach or you teach and you get a little direct about things, you're a little bit too straightforward. 
little too direct. And I think, well, I got it from a good place because Jesus is just as straightforward, amen? He's not like these politicians that can't give you a straight answer, man. He just shoots straight, and you're left with a decision. I'm either going to obey or disobey here. I don't want to sit around and think about it. He says in exceedingly clear terms what he means. Now, so many times we try to complicate what he said, and R.C. Sproul said it, well, Jesus must be a poor teacher for so many to try to help him out so much. But we know better than that. The first thing we see in Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, come, come to me. He says, if any man will come after me. Notice the first thing he says. This is a call he gives. And I I argue that one of the greatest words in all the Bible is just simply the word come. Amen? That, That God, our holy God and judge, the one we have sinned against and offended, he invites us to come. Glory, hallelujah. What a gracious God we have. Come. This is the call. Notice what it says to all. Luke 9, 23, the crowd, those that had gathered, he said to them, all, if any man will come after me. He said, all, and he says, if any man. Listen, this isn't a private pep speech. This isn't Peter, James, and John pulled off to the side and say, look, you're my inner core. I really need you to go to another level, man. He wasn't just speaking to the 12 here. He says, if any man. He says all that were there in his hearing. He gives that command to all. What does it mean to come to him? Jesus made it clear in the most famous sermon ever delivered, arguably the Sermon on the Mount. And I know you studied through Matthew, and so this will be familiar to you. But Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, I think he, he shows us what that looks like. What does it mean to come to him? Matthew 7, 13, he says, enter ye in at the straight gate. He goes on to say in verse 14, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. The first thing we see is you have to come through the straight and narrow gate. In Matthew 7, he talks about three aspects of that part of the sermon. He talks about the gate, he talks about the way, and he talks about the destination. And when you think about the gate and the way and the destination, remember there's a distinction there. We always think about the narrow way that leads to life. There's two aspects of that. There's a narrow gate that you enter, and then there's a way you continue on, and then you end up at that destination. When you think about this gate, when he says, come through this straight gate, this narrow gate, think about the turnstile. You go to a ball game, and you see this mass of people going to the, well, you really don't want to watch the Bengals uh, this weekend. Uh, go to the Reds game, you know, so they're trying to make this, uh, this late season push for the playoffs. You see all these people, and they narrow down, and there's one little turnstile where they're keeping track of everyone that comes through, right? You might come as a crowd, but listen, you're not going through that turnstile in a crowd. It narrows down to one, right? Click, 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 right? You're going to go through that turnstile. He says, in a sense, there is a straight, constricted, narrow gate. You can't come in a crowd when you come to Christ. You can't carry your luggage through. You must come, you must come alone, and you must drop what you're carrying. You have to drop all your righteous merits. You can't come and offer him what you've done. You have to leave that all behind, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. You must strive to enter that straight gate. We must repent as we come. Repent and believe. To be saved, repent and believe. True saving faith goes, it repents, it believes, and it perseveres. Remember this, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes this narrow gate, narrow way that leads to life. I believe that there's a great doctrine in the Baptist faith, and it's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And it's found all throughout the scriptures. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that true saving faith has a past, present, and future aspect. 
1 Corinthians 15, 1, Paul says this, you know these verses. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also, notice the past tense, which ye have received, past tense, you have in the past received it, and wherein you stand, that's in the present tense. And then he says in verse number 2, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. There's the future tense. And then he says, unless you believed in vain. And this warns against false professions and further only supports the perseverance of the saints. And then he describes in verse 3 and 4 the gospel of Christ dying for our sins, buried, rising again according to the scriptures on the third day. We see that there is a past, present, and future aspect to your salvation. What do we say here? Now we're Baptists. We don't don't believe in work salvation. We understand. That's not what I'm espousing tonight. Please don't misunderstand me when I say this. But true saving faith will persevere. Because you are saved, you will continue on the narrow way and you will end up in everlasting life. That is a truth from the Scripture. You did believe in the past, you do believe in the present, and you will continue on until He calls you home. Just because you've been raised in a Christian home, you may have heard the preacher's sermon, that doesn't mean you're going to heaven. You have to make that decision. You alone. You can't come as a couple. You might be here tonight as a couple, and, and, and the reality is, is your spouse can't get saved for you. You have to make that decision. You, you can't come as a family or a group of friends. It's you. It's not a mob mentality. You have to come through that straight gate, continue on the narrow way. But sadly, what we see today is that people try to make a, a profession at the gate, and they want to jump over and live on the Broadway and think they're going to end up in everlasting life. That's called living a lie. The Lord knows his sheep, and the sheep hear his voice, and they follow him, and they end up in everlasting life. Listen, the reality today is, was there a past aspect to your salvation? Was there a time that you came? Is there a present continuation in that salvation? You continue to walk in Christ. Will there be a future keeping aspect to what you heard and believed? Have you come? Are you continuing, and will you keep what you have believed? Paul says there will be a past, present, and future aspect. You'll continue down that narrow way. Sadly, there are those in each generation who bear the name of Christ but live a lie. They profess to come through the gate, but then they want to live on the broad way. This is living a lie. They love the world and they're loved by the world. This is enmity with God. Listen, my friend, we must not live a lie. And I ask you tonight, what have you? Have you come through that straight gate? Have you dropped all of your righteousness, all that you offer Him? All your righteous deeds and good works you're trying to uh, give unto him. You've got to leave those there. You can't bring that luggage through. You can't bring that baggage through. You've got to drop it there. Come through that straight gate. And then you go on that narrow way. And it's a narrow way as opposed to the broad way that leads to destruction. Listen, and then you're going to end up in everlasting life. Pastor, is that me? I don't know. You know what I see in ministry? I'm not the oldest, but I'm also not the youngest anymore. Uh, I don't color my hair. <clears throat> so you can kind of see about how old I am. And uh, <laughs> we're almost three years apart, but man, we look a lot more apart than that, you know? <laughs> Amen. I just look at it like I'm going, to meet, I'm going to beat him to heaven, you know what I mean? And so uh, that's, that's, that's all. Anyway. What, what, we've, what you see sometimes is these folks who will make a profession and, and, and they're really not sincere in that profession and they live out all their days and you, you can't find them at church with a search warrant. You, you go knock and knock and knock on their door and you can't get them to come and they're not sincere about it and, 
that they have no interest in the things of God, and you ask yourself these questions, well, what is this, right? I mean, if you're going down the highway and your car gets a flat, and you get out to fix that, one of those little nuts rolls out in the middle of the road, and a big old semi comes and plows you over, do you just pick yourself back up, get in the car, fix it, and come on down to the, to the revival services tonight? Oh, listen, a semi is going to plow you over and you're going to feel the effects of it. And if the God of the universe through his Holy Spirit is coming to live inside of your life, your life will not be the same. And so it's hard to argue that people say, well, I'm in Christ and there's no change in the way you talk, live, walk, or what you do the rest of your life. That's living a lie. He made the universe by a spoken word. He's going to move in and your life's going to be transformed. Come to Jesus. Secondly, deny yourself. He says, if any man will come after me, then he says, let him deny himself. Deny himself. This generation is often lied to because we're constantly told, don't say no to you, say yes to you. You, you know the common refrain from people when you ask a question or a poll on social media or some venue today is, you do you. You just be happy. Whatever makes you happy, that is what God would want for you. And then you read what Jesus said. Jesus said, no, that's not what it's, I said. <laughs> if any man will come after me, the first thing he says, let him deny himself. We have to stop saying yes to ourselves. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that we, the, less of the, uh, the, the, less of our, uh, the lovers of self and the lovers of pleasure, perilous times would come because people love themselves so much. And the problem is this, we live to try to please ourselves, and ourself is the issue. We're feeding a monster. Shane Pruitt said it well about self-help. He said, self is the problem. And if self is the problem, self can't be the solution. We need someone outside of self. We need a Savior, and his name is Jesus. Biblical Christianity is a call to give your life away, to give your all to Jesus in complete surrender. Today's Christianity is a call to get the life you want, even using Jesus to get that life. Are you truly in Christ? Have you been regenerated? Aren't we reminded from Paul, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If so, you are a new person. You've had a change of heart. You've been given a new heart, and the old stony heart's been taken out. Ezekiel 36 says, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. So how do you know the difference between a true believer and a false one? I know we're not to judge, I get all that, but we are able to see and observe fruit, and this should be good for us to introspect tonight. Listen, I don't think it's a bad thing to check yourself. The reality is, is the test only shows what you are. And a true believer, they have the assurance of the Word of God and the confirmation of the Spirit of God, the witness that they are in Christ. Listen, the difference between what Ezekiel says is about a stony heart and a, and a heart of flesh is this. If you walk out in the parking lot tonight and you see a large stone somewhere, you see some different rocks of varying sizes, you, you, you go up to that stone and you blow on that stone, you push, punch, talk to that stone, you're not going to get any reaction, are you? And you don't expect to because it's a stone. Yet you think about living flesh. Living flesh will react. If you go after service tonight and you blow on someone or you push someone or you punch someone or you speak to someone, you're going to get a reaction. Why? Because it's living flesh. If you're truly saved, you have a new heart and it will respond to the things of God. It wants not be able to respond, but now as a true believer, it does respond. Now you ask yourself a question personally and you think about many in our world. 
The person who has a living heart responds to the things of God. They respond to preaching. They respond to the Word of God. They have a desire to yield to the Holy Spirit. They have desire for the milk and meat of the Word, for the communion of the saints, for worshiping the Lord, for gathering together, for seeking His face. And how many times do you see people that have zero desire for any of these things? You, you can preach like you've heard this week and you hear every week at this church. And there are people that can come in and they leave out and they're no more phased and they just listen to a 60-second commercial. There's no response. They have no desire for the things of God, no desire for the Word of God. And you've got to ask yourself at some point, is your heart a stone or a living heart? A great sign of a heart transplant is you love what you used to hate and you hate what you used to love. You don't fit into this world. You stand out in this world. You're not known for likeness to the world. You're known for distinction in the world. Remember, you're on that narrow way, man. So come to Jesus, deny yourself, and I ask you, do you ever deny yourself? Is there ever a time you say no to something you want in order that you might say yes to something that Jesus wants? Sadly, we deny Jesus for self. We deny worship for self. Yet that's not going to work out well one day if we continue that way. Matthew 10 says if we confess him, he will confess us. If we deny him, he will deny us. Now why do you live to deny yourself these things? Because essentially you can't have it both ways. You can't ride the fence. You can't straddle it. You can't say yes to yourself, the flesh that's going one way, and yes to Jesus who wants you to go a different way. It's not just a matter of living. You say, you're trying to get me to drink water, uh, broth, and live in Tibet? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you have to say no to you so you can say yes to him. And anyone that gets serious about God knows what that means. It's going to cost you something. You, you will say no to the desires of your life. You will say no to the passions that the world tries to appeal. And you will say yes to Jesus, and it will come at a cost. Number three, take up your cross daily. He says, take up his cross daily. The third thing is not only come to him, deny yourself, but he says, take up your cross daily. What is this? This is to die to yourself. Our culture has their own impression of taking up their cross. So oftentimes, we've probably all been guilty of it. We, see, we say things like, well, I'm taking up my cross today. That old back, you know. Maybe some of you are talking about someone else in your family, you know. They're just my cross I'm carrying, you know. Ailments, difficulty in relation. It's just my cross to bear. There's a reality of that where we really are making an affront to what crucifixion really was. We've never seen an actual crucifixion. In the Roman world, the cross was a symbol of shame, guilt, suffering, and rejection. It was execution. There could be no more despicable way to die. Crucifixion was not mentioned in polite conversation. And the people would no more think of wearing crosses on their person as we do today than, they, than we would think of wearing gold or silver needles or electric chairs. Jesus laid down the stern requirements for discipleship. We must first say no to ourselves, but to self, and then take up our cross and follow Christ daily. The man who was to be crucified had this description. The man in the Roman Empire who was to be crucified had the cross or the cross beam laid upon him. The moment that happened, he lost all his rights. The world, the people could do whatever they wanted, because at that time, he was property of Rome. The crowds could mock and jeer and spit and malign, especially if they were evil. They would throw rocks at their eyes, break their legs, throw buckets of waste. Birds would come and pluck out their eyes. The man with the cross no longer controlled his destiny. He lost control when he picked up his cross. 
That cross immediately became to him an all-absorbing interest, an overwhelming interference. No matter what he may desire to do, there is but one thing he can do, that is move on toward the place of crucifixion. One thing you knew about a man who was being crucified, when you saw him going out of the city, carrying that cross, one thing you knew, they weren't coming back. That's not the kind of Christianity we like today. We like the word commitment. We don't like the word surrender. Commitment retains control. Surrender yields control. We don't mind Jesus as a co-pilot. We just don't want to surrender control. We like Jesus as an advisor. We don't like him as Lord. We don't mind Jesus moving in. We just don't want him taking over. But I remind you again, I can't say it enough, Jesus isn't coming to move in. He's coming to take over. When you take up your cross, you also lose all your rights. You change the pronoun. And I realize in these days and times to talk about pronouns is a delicate thing. You give up the word my for the word his. 1 Corinthians 6, What know you not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? Did you hear that? You are not your own. You are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. We are to glorify Him in our body and spirit, which are God's. They belong to God. Those who have this mindset of the woe is me and why has God wronged me, they blame God for all that's wrong in life. And this to me is a telltale sign that you have never truly transferred complete ownership over to Him. If it's your life, you'll complain. If it's his life, you'll trust. Have you come to Jesus? Are you denying yourself? Have you taken up your cross? These aren't my words. You say, Pastor, I've never heard these kind of sermons before. Well, I know you've heard them here. But I've never heard these kind of sermons elsewhere. This is kind of a different message. But what have I said tonight out of the scriptures that Jesus didn't first say? Did he not say in verse uh, 23, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily? Verse number 23 concludes with this, and follow me, follow me. Let me just kind of summarize what follow me is. That follow me literally comes from a Greek word that means, it has two words, united road. United road. It means the union road. It means to be together. It is to walk in the same way with. Where Jesus goes, I will go. What he wants me to do, I will do. Wherever he leads, I will follow. You will trace the life that he chooses for you to live. Do you follow Jesus and walk where and as he walked? You say you abide in him, do you walk as he walked? What would Jesus do? Are you doing that? Are you following him? Listen, are you seeking the things above and not the things of this earth? What if you were put on trial tonight for being a disciple? Would there be enough evidence to convict? Or could you be acquitted and you'd walk off and they say, you're not a disciple? Colossians 3, if you're risen with him, you'll seek those things above. What does Christianity actually ever cost you and I? Paul said in Galatians 6, 17, from henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, I was branded, I was seared. What what does this mean? He says in 2 Corinthians 11 that five uh, five times he received... 40 stripes minus one, or uh, save one. You do the math there, it's 195 stripes. There's a sense here where Paul was seared. Paul was branded. Paul was marked. 
The Galatians were saying, well, we have circumcision. We have the right of baptism. We claim these external things. Paul says, yes, by the way, I also have my marks. You want to look at them here? I was branded. I was seared. It cost me something to follow Christ. I ask you tonight, what does it cost you to follow Christ? Do you have any scars for Jesus? You know, the reality is at 45 years of age, I have a lot of scars for being stupid. (laughs) When I was a teenager, I punched a locker and I got five or six stitches. When I was about 27 years old, I held a shotgun too close and I wasn't holding firmly enough. and and uh, And the scope on that... Bear, I'm just telling all my stupid stories. Hit me right in the head, and I cut my head wide open. I thought, boy, I'm going to have to go back to church tomorrow. I'm going to say, what happened to you, stupid, you know? Uh, When I was 13 years old, I rode my little brother's bike as fast as I possibly could. I went over a ramp. When I came down the back uh, bolt on his bike, cut my leg, my calf muscle right in half, and I had 21 stitches to sew my calf muscle, my leg back up. I've got scars all over my body. I've got scars on my arm from moving a fence post, and my wife was pushing, and I, she got a little rambunctious, and I didn't grab it just right, and it scarred my arm up, and they had to sew it up just a couple years ago. i got scars all over my body from being stupid. And you ask yourself the question. The reality is, is you got both mental, emotional scars, and you have physical scars for the life you live. But I ask you tonight, what kind of scars do you have for following Jesus? Paul says, I was branded, I was marked. There are many Christians who have no scars because they don't get close enough to get any shrapnel. They're like Peter who stayed from afar. They followed afar. You see, you get close to Jesus, you're going to feel the effects. If they hate him, they're going to hate you. But some of us just want to back off. We don't want to get too serious about Jesus because it's going to come at a cost. Tozer said it so well. Listen, you knew one thing about a man who was carrying a cross out of the city You knew he wasn't coming back. Are you turning back? Have you lost your rights? Are you still using the improper pronoun my life instead of his life? He says, Pastor, this is just a one-off. You know, there's some passages in the New Testament come across a little strong. Is this just a one-off? Well, then I read in other passages. You don't get through Luke chapter 9 without seeing the same thing in Luke 9, 57 to 62. You see in Matthew 13, you see... Uh, uh, Luke 13, Matthew 10, Matthew 16, Mark chapter 8, John 12, Luke 14. Many other passages that show us this wasn't a one-off. This wasn't some random statement of Jesus. This is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Look to Luke 14. I'll share just a few thoughts before we conclude tonight. Chapter 14, verse 25. Here. Me? It's me? I guess if you move... All right, is that any better? I don't know. I'll, I'll try to stand still. I don't know if it helps or not, all right? That's hard. It's like a chained dog right now, you know? All right, Luke 14 and verse number 25. Luke 14, look at what it says. Jesus never watered down discipleship. And Luke 14, verse number 25, look at how clear it, it is. He, and there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them. You know, the first thing we see that Jesus many times grew, drew a great crowd. But you know one thing that Jesus did, and it seemed almost so ironic, it seemed like he was always trying to thin the crowd, you know? Today you would say, Jesus, you don't market very well. You you sure don't seize the moment. You don't ride the wave very well. He failed by today's standard to ride the wave of popular opinion. Here he has a huge crowd following, and then he turns and he gives the strongest message he can. Listen, I don't think Jesus wanted to thin the crowd. He just wanted to make sure that was a true crowd. True disciples. 
What he wants more than false profession is a true possessor of Jesus Christ. Number one, the first thing we see in verse 26, he says this, to follow Jesus is to put Jesus above everyone else. Verse 26, if any man come to me and hate not father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You know what Jesus says here? That your love for him needs to be greater than your love for anyone else. Every other relationship. This is a severe message, isn't it? You say, Pastor, does this contradict? Should this be here in the Bible? Doesn't the Bible tell me to love my family? Doesn't it say that we should care for them? This is what we call a comparative teaching. Clearly the Bible tells us to love our families and even our enemies. So what's Jesus saying here? This is a comparative teaching. Clearly searching and evaluating Scripture with Scripture, we are to love all those relationships mentioned there. Yet the comparative aspect of this is this. Your relationship with Jesus compared to your relationship with everyone else is to be in a category all its own. Your love for Jesus will appear to be hatred and dislike for all other relationships. Your marriage, family, closest friends will not be on the same level as your love for him. You say, Pastor, that seems stern. Remember, he asked nothing of you that he didn't first give for you. He gave everything for you. Jesus asked nothing that he didn't first give. It doesn't mean you'll have to give up these relationships, but you should never give more love to anyone else over Jesus. That's what he's getting at. This was the case in many in that crowd that day. This is the case in many in our world today. If you count the cost and choose to follow Christ, it can cost you your closest relationships. It will. It, it absolutely will. You, if you get serious with Jesus and you love and pursue Jesus, you come to him, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, it will come at a strain on other relationships. It can't help but come at a strain. What does your relationship with Christ cost you? You know, Jesus separates, doesn't he? He causes distinction. He divided men at his birth. He divided them, Leonard Ravenhill says, in his life. He divided them on the cross. He divided them at the judgment seat. Jesus declared quite openly that his mission was to divide men, and he still divides men, and he will do so until the time ends. But the question today becomes, why isn't there more distinction then? Why is it that you can put like a profile of 10 people and they can all maybe half profess Christ and half not profess Christ, but they, many of their lives just look the same? Well, it's because the reality is, is many people are not loving Jesus like they need to. Many Christians love father, mother, brother, sister more than Jesus. And when it comes down to a decision, it's not sorry family, Jesus is number one. Rather, it's sorry Jesus, family is number one. My relationships are superior to you. I love my spouse. I dislike you, Jesus. Parents will chase their kids to the end of the earth, but they won't chase Jesus to church on Sundays and Wednesdays. To follow Jesus, to prize him above everyone else. There should be no relationship in this world that you love more than you love Jesus. The issue we have is not a knowledge issue, it's a heart issue and it's a love issue. To follow Jesus is to love him first. Verse 27 goes on to say, to follow Jesus is to prioritize Jesus above everything else, even your very own life. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Do we love him first? Do we put him above everything else? What else competes for your affection? Then he goes on to say, before you come to him, you need to count the cost. Verse 28 to 32 says, before you come to follow him, you need to count the cost. Before you build, count the cost. Lest you begin to build and then you run out of money and you become a mockery to the world. 
Before you go out to battle, you better count how many soldiers they have and how many soldiers you have so that you don't end up a fool in the battlefield. What's he saying? Before you come and follow me, you better weigh this decision out because this isn't a start with me, end up somewhere else type of decision. It's come in, come all in, and go all the way. Count the cost before you build and go to battle. And we see in verse number 33, to follow Jesus requires a willingness to forsake all you have to gain him. He says, uh, whosoever be, verse 33, of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. We, we need to count these costs. It may not mean you have to give everything up. It may not mean you have to come and surrender every deed that you have in your name, all the money you have over to him, your relationships, houses, properties, and possessions. But listen, you should not withhold anything he ever asks of you. He should be given the full ownership of all you have. And you should see anything you get to manage as a blessing, any days, family, resources, ministry. He loves you, and he wants what's best for you and best for your future. But you need to make sure that everything you do is funneled through your love for him. And notice the result in verse 34 and 35. When you live this way, when you live as a disciple, you'll be as salt in the world. You'll not be saltless salt. You'll be distinct salt. The result of following him is to be distinct in our world. Notice how different it is from then till now. The early church was known for its separateness in the world. Today's church is known for its likeness to the world. Then it was distinct. Now it assimilates. Then it was reverent. Now it seeks to be relevant. Then it sought the, savers, the Savior's favor. Now it curries the sinner's favor. Spurgeon said that very church which the world likes best is sure to be that which God abhors. Why is the church today so weak and inept? Spurgeon said further, I believe one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Let's remember these truths. So back to Luke 9 as we bring it to a conclusion tonight. He said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Verse 24, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantage if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? Notice these verses. If you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose it for Christ, you'll save it. Verse 25, what does it matter if you gain the whole world and lose your soul and be cast away? You ever stop thinking about how you could be successful at everything and lose your soul and have a total loss? A quote I heard a few years ago said this, my greatest fear in life is to win at everything that doesn't really matter. Do your trophies matter? Do your medals matter? Do your awards and levels and games and successes matter? Think about this. We had, a year ago, purchased a house next to the church property, and it had been there in a house with, in a pole barn and over two acres of ground, and uh, it had joined us, and there was like 60 trees that really blocked the road, and it was a dangerous issue, and we needed more room to expand the church, and Long story short, the family had come to us about uh, one of the family members had passed and the other uh, had, was not able uh, up in their years to stay there anymore. And they came to us and they said, would you want to purchase it? And so we met as a, as a leadership and discussed it and brought it before the church. And we moved to, to buy that property. And it's been a tremendous blessing. We made it in our church offices and it's able to expand our ministries. Long story short, when they moved out, they said, we, we told them because we realized as they, the house, they lived there like 40 years. <laughs> They'd accumulated a lot of stuff stuff and more stuff and he passed unexpectedly 
she went to the care home and the family was left with a house full of stuff. We walked in that and I thought, oh my goodness. So we said, hey, look, we realized that, you know, the family, they, they weren't really interested in trying to take all the stuff out and they weren't going to be able to try to fix the house all up. We said, if you just want to sell it as is, we'll buy it as is. You don't have to touch a thing. Well, that meant a lot more work for us, but that's all right. We had a lot of people to do the work. Long story short, they came in, they got all that they wanted. They had months to get it all out. They came in, they got it all out. And we walked in there and we thought, did they take anything? And we end up having that. Look, we're not yard sale people. We're not garage sale people. But we had a, a company that a couple in our church does auctions. They came in and did three auctions. They sold things out of that. And I'm telling you, that family, they didn't care about that stuff. We were able to repurpose over $10,000 of the ministries of the church because of it, you know. That's that cheapskate, you know, in me, you know, all right, coming out. I good stewardship is the way I look at it. But anyway, uh, let me just say, they have been collecting things for 40 years. And they were so concerned with the stuff that was in that house. They had memorabilia and all sort of vintage items and more stuff than you could imagine. It, it, it took three auctions. It took dozens of people hauling stuff out. The basement, the upstairs. You could barely get through the house. Nobody cared about the stuff. The stuff that was so important to them. The moment they passed, the family comes in and says, we don't want it. And I'm saying to you, are you giving your life to stuff that don't even matter to anybody? And your family saying, they're going to make, no, it ain't going to mean anything to them. The stuff, oh, your life is but a vapor that's here for a time, and this stuff will not make a difference. I say to you, what is it advantage you gain the whole world and lose yourself? Are you ashamed of Christ? Are you ashamed of his word? Do you fear what others think of you more than what Christ knows about you? There is approaching a day when Jesus is going to come and he's going to judge and he knows everything. And on that day, you will not be able to convince him of something that you aren't today. You can't change that day then, but you can change that day now. And if you're here tonight and you're not saved, we invite you to come. If you're here tonight and you're walking in a position of compromise, we challenge you to take that next step and be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you this story, and this leads into our invitation. I'm going to sing a song tonight that you are very familiar with, I trust. Let me tell the story behind this song. About 150 years ago, there was a great revival in Wales. As a result of this, many missionaries came to northeast India to spread the gospel. The region known as Assam was comprised of hundreds of tribes who were primitive and aggressive headhunters. Into these hostile and aggressive communities came a group of missionaries from the American Baptist Mission spreading the message of Jesus Christ. Naturally, they were not welcome. One missionary succeeded in converting a man, his wife, and two children. This man's faith proved contagious, and many villagers began to accept Christianity. Angry, the village chief summoned all the villagers. He then called the family who had first converted to renounce their faith in public or face execution. Moved by the Holy Spirit, the man said, I have decided to follow Jesus. Enraged at the refusal of the man, the chief ordered his archers to arrow down his two children. As both boys lay dying on the floor, the chief asked, will you deny your faith? You've lost both your children. You will lose your wife too. But the man replied, though none go with me, still I will follow. The chief was beside himself with fury and ordered his wife to be arrowed down. In a moment, she joined her two children in death. Now he asked for the last time, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. 
In the face of death, the man said the final memorable lines, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. He was shot dead like the rest of his family. But with their deaths, a miracle took place. The chief who had ordered the killings was moved by the faith of the man. He wondered, why should this man, wife, and two children die for a man who lived in a faraway land on another continent 2,000 years ago? There must be some remarkable power behind the family's faith, and I too want to taste that faith. In a spontaneous confession of faith, he declared, I too belong to Jesus Christ. When the crowd heard this from the mouth of their chief, the whole village also accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. The song is based on the last words of Naksing, a man from Garo tribe of Assam, India. It is today the song of the Garo people. I have decided to follow Jesus. And tonight, as we come to a conclusion on this sermon, will you decide now to follow Jesus? Mm-hmm.